0: Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. I just want to say I hope all my listeners are doing their best to stay healthy, safe, and sane during the ever lengthening period of coronavirus. Remember back at the beginning of April when we thought that this would just be like a two week thing? oh, how foolish and innocent we all were back then. If you're going back to school or you have family who's having to go back to school, I'm thinking of you. I'm hoping that whatever school district you're in, whether it's elementary, high school, or college, the school is doing some sort of online remote learning or has that built into their plans because, yeah, it looks like face-to-face learning really isn't going to be an option for the near future. Also, I want to quickly apologize for being a week delayed in releasing this episode. When I was preparing to record last week, it was about 100 degrees in the room in my apartment where I record, which, yes, is my closet. And for my own comfort, that just wasn't something that was feasible. Yes, mother, I do have fans and air conditioning in my apartment, just it does not extend to my actual closet, especially when the door is closed to improve the acoustics. So yeah, I put things on hold a little bit, and now it's much cooler in Chicago. Huzzah! So I'm able to record without descending into a pile of sweat, all of the Wicked Witch, in The Wizard of Oz. After much delay, This week's study guide is going to be about Georgia Douglas Johnson, who was one of the most famous poets and playwrights of the Harlem Renaissance, regardless of her gender. I realized that throughout the series, I kept being like, so-and-so is one of the most famous female playwrights or female poets. And it's like, why do we have to cage everything by like, oh, she was famous for her gender? Why isn't it enough? Just you say, she was famous, period. And I think Georgia Douglas Johnson is a great example of that. Georgia Douglas's Johnson Study Guide has school songs and a great cameo by everyone's famous and uncorrupt president, good old silent Cal. Let's begin. Georgia Douglas Johnson was born September 10th, 1877. As an interesting note, A lot of her biographies say that she was born September 10th, 1886, which would make her a full nine years younger, but her official birth certificate said that she was born in 1877, so I'm going to go with 1877. She was born in Atlanta, Georgia, as Georgia Blanche Douglas Camp. Her parents were Laura Douglas and George Camp. Her mother, Laura, was of African-American and Native American descent, while her father George was mixed white and African-American descent. Even though Georgia Douglas Johnson was mixed race due to the one-drop rule that existed in American society at the time, she would be considered Black. According to letters that Georgia sent later on in her life, she had at least one sibling, a sister, growing up, but I wasn't able to find out any details beyond that. I couldn't even find that sister's name, how old that sister was, when that sister died, as well as information about any other possible Douglas siblings that might have have existed. In her earliest years, Georgia grew up in Rome, Georgia, with both of her parents. However, like so many other women who I've discussed in this series, her parents separated early on in her childhood, and Georgia ended up staying with her mother, and the family moved to Atlanta. As an interesting side note, after the parents' separation, Georgia kept her mother's last name Douglas and not her father's last name Camp, which is why she is known to history as Georgia Douglas Johnson so it seems like little Georgia was a bit of a feminist even then. We don't have a whole lot of information about Georgia's childhood beyond the fact that she was living in Atlanta with her mother and was going to local all-black schools because, remember, we're in the late 19th century, Jim Crow rules, everything in the Deep South is going to be segregated. In 1893, Georgia Johnson pops back into the historical record when she graduated from the Normal School of Atlanta University, which was a historically Black university. After graduation from the Normal School, she went on to be a teacher, mostly in English and music, in two cities in Georgia, Atlanta and Marietta. She worked as a teacher for about nine years, and then in 1902, Georgia decided that she wanted a bit of a career change, and she moved to up north to Ohio, specifically to Oberlin, Ohio. And that was because Georgia was going to attend the Oberlin Conservatory. And the Oberlin Conservatory, even nowadays, is known for being a pretty great music school. During her time at the Oberlin Conservatory, Georgia studied piano, violin, and voice. Her plan at the time was to get work as a composer and to make music her career, but that didn't quite pan out and she ended up moving back south to Georgia to work as an assistant principal at an all-black girls' school. And I want to just think for a second about what this move back to Georgia must have been like. Remember, Oberlin was the first college in the United States to accept both women and African Americans. So, it was hugely, hugely liberal at the time. Going there for Georgia must have been totally eye-opening. Like, yes, going to college is always eye-opening, but moving from the deeply segregated South to a college that has been accepting women and African Americans for over three decades must have been huge. And then, when it all ended, she had to go back to the South, that was decades, decades, even centuries behind the life she had been living up in Ohio. Even though Georgia Douglas Johnson wasn't able to fully pursue that musical career that she dreamt of, she would continue to write music throughout her life. She often wrote music that was meant to be sung along with her poetry and used her own music in several of the plays she would write later on in life. She would also continue to take college-level music classes throughout her life, including at Howard University in Washington, D.C. The year after leaving Oberlin and returning back to Atlanta, Georgia got married. Her husband was Henry Lincoln Johnson, aka Link a prominent African-American attorney who was starting to make a name for himself in the local Atlanta Republican Party. Link Johnson was the son of two former slaves. He had gone, much like Georgia, to Atlanta University before moving on to University of Michigan where he got a law degree and he then came back to Atlanta became a lawyer and eventually became one of the Georgia delegates to the Republican National Committee which is even more impressive given the fact that he was not white and we're at that time in American history where African American men were pretty blatantly being denied the right to vote with things like poll taxes and literacy tests After getting married, Georgia and Link had two sons, Henry Johnson Jr. in 1906 and Peter Johnson in 1907. Then in 1909, the Johnson family moved to Washington, D.C. because Link's political career was taking off far faster than anyone could have imagined. Basically, Henry got appointed to be the recorder of the deeds by Republican President William Howard Taft. Traditionally, the position recorder of the deeds had been held by a prominent African-American man in whatever party was in charge, and Lincoln Johnson was one of the highest-ranking African-American men in the Republican Party at the time, so it made sense that he would get the job, and he would continue to rise in national Republican politics. He would end up becoming the head Republican National Committee man from Georgia the move from Atlanta to D.C. was most likely extremely exciting for Georgia Douglas Johnson. After all, compared to the Deep South, Washington, D.C. was a better place to live as an African American. Yes, there still was. Deep segregation. Schools, streetcars, etc., etc. were segregated, but African Americans in D.C. didn't have to deal with the overt violence, thanks to groups like the KKK that existed in the deeper southern states. Also, Washington, D.C. had a really thriving Black cultural scene, basically second best only to New York City, thanks to pre-existing institutions like Howard University and the Dunbar High School, both of which I've discussed in previous episodes. Once the family moved to D.C. and became well-established as members in the African-American middle class due to Link's work in the Republican Party, Georgia didn't have to teach anymore, and instead she turned her interest to writing. However, Link was not into the idea of his wife being a writer. He, in fact, was disgusted by it. He had married Georgia looking for a traditional housewife. And a traditional housewife in the 19th times did things like make tea, make nice conversation, and look pretty. A traditional housewife did not write poetry. However, Georgia put her husband's objections to the side and continued writing. In 1916, she started having her poems published by Crisis, The official magazine of the NAACP, which we've discussed so many times by now. And pretty quickly, thanks to previous podcast subject Jessie Fawcett, Georgia started getting recognized for her writing talents. She also most likely became close friends with previous podcast subject Angelina Weld Grimke around the same time. In 1918, she published her first collection of poetry, and she published her second collection four years later in 1922, and these two early collections of Georgia's work had pretty great reviews across the board. However, Georgia continued to have a frayed relationship with her husband, who would like her to just stay in the kitchen and make him a sandwich, thank you very much, whereas Georgia would like to sit in the parlor and write some damn poems, thank you very much. However, this tension didn't last all that long. Because in 1925, Georgia's husband, Link, died unexpectedly of a stroke. He had been suffering from bad health for several years at that point, due to his ever-increasing weight. I guess he did take after his political mentor, William Howard Taft, after all. But his death was certainly unexpected. And with Link dead, that meant that Georgia was suddenly going to have to raise two children on her own, on a single salary. And to make matters even trickier, both of her sons were pretty close to being the right age to start college. And in 1910, college wasn't exactly cheap. Yeah, sure, the prices weren't quite as high as they are in 2020, but you needed to save up for that. However, with Link out of the picture, Georgia was able to pursue writing full-time, She didn't have to worry about her husband breathing down her neck every time she sat down with a pen in hand. And as it turned out, she really succeeded as a writer. She was able to pay for both of her sons' college educations, and they would both go to very excellent schools. One went to Bowdoin and one went to Dartmouth, and she also helped them pay for their post-college degrees. One went to law school, and the other went to medical school. And yeah, she basically paid for all of that herself with the royalties from her writing. The same year that her husband died, then-President Calvin Coolidge decided to throw Georgia a bit of a bone and gave her a job on the Department of Labor as a Commissioner of Conciliation in honor of her husband and all the work that he had done. In this position, Georgia was in charge of helping to resolve minor labor disputes. And on the one hand, this position meant that she didn't have to worry quite so much about her family's finances. She no longer had to solely rely on her writing to make money. She did have a steady 95 jobs with steady benefits and pay and all that nice stuff. But on the other hand, she really hated working for the Department of Labor at a traditional 95 job because she felt like it made it way harder for her to focus on her writing. Soon after Link's death, Georgia decided to turn their home, 1461 Northwest S Street, into a bit of a literary salon. Their house, once she had set it up as her cultural center, began to get known as both the halfway house and the S Street Salon. Most of the guests to the salon aspect of the home were female artists and writers, some of whom we've already discussed, like like Angelina Boat Grimke and Spencer and Eulalie Spence. But Georgia opened her home to non-female artists like Langston Hughes and Jean Toomer to get a sense of what they were doing and get input from them and to have their work read aloud, as well as inviting various non-African American writers and writers artists. According to Gossip at the time, she had an especially soft spot towards her lesbian and gay guests of the salon, which is interesting. There were no rumors of any hanky-panky between the guests and Georgia Johnson, but everyone commented that she was always the friendliest with gay men and lesbians. So you go, Georgia Johnson, an ally before your time. In addition to simply using the Salon as a place where people could gather and talk about writing, she also used it as a place where women's writing, specifically plays and poems, could be read aloud and critiqued before publication. And the Salon would be a huge success. It would last until the nineteen. 30s, And because of how important the S Street Salon was in terms of connecting disparate African American thinkers and artists, it helped make Georgia considered to be a central part of the Harlem Renaissance, even though she rarely visited New York City in her lifetime. And as a last interesting side note about the S Street Salon, she also would use her home as a place for people to come crash in if they were in hard times, especially as the 1930s and the Great Depression picked up, hence its nickname of the halfway house. In 1926, the year after Link died, Georgia branched out from just writing poems into writing plays as well. The same year that she started writing plays, she won the first prize in the magazine Opportunities Contest for Drama, and that same year, she got another play produced by W.E.B. Du Bois' Creekwalk Players, which I discussed in a previous episode. By the time she died, Georgia Douglas Johnson would write almost 30 different one act plays, although the vast majority of them have been lost to time. At the time that she was writing, she and Julia Spence were basically the two most famous African American female playwrights. I mean, yes, there were other African American female playwrights who existed and were writing, see Angelina Weld Grimke, as well as more minor figures, but. Georgia and Eulalie were really the main two whose plays were being produced, one, and two, whose plays were being discussed by male cultural leaders, such as Alan Locke and W.E.B. Du Bois, and whose plays were being recognized as something distinct and worthy of conversation by said male cultural leaders. By the late 1920s, Georgia also branched into writing songs, short stories, weekly columns for various newspapers, a biography of her late husband, as well as a bunch of unpublished work. During this time period, she wrote the school song for several small state universities, including Savannah State University. Also during this time, when she returned to writing music, she worked closely with a female composer, Lillian Avanti, who she had met during her time at Oberlin. In addition to the various genres of writing that she was working in, Georgia Douglas Johnson was also very involved in different types of political activity through the 1920s and 1930s. In 1925, Right after her husband died, she became an ally of the Brotherhood of the Sleeping Car Porters. The Brotherhood was a predominantly Black labor union led by A. Philip Randolph, and it basically was the first African-American labor union in United States history and did a lot of really neat civil rights and labor rights stuff, and it is on the very, very long list of things to do an episode about someday. Trust me. Georgia opened up her home to the Brotherhood as a place for them to organize and plan different actions, and she gave them quite a bit of money, even though quite a few of her more society-oriented friends in Washington, D.C. were not exactly supportive of that choice, because in the 1920s, the Brotherhood were considered to be pretty damn radical. Then, in 1929, Georgia helped organize an interracial conference of anti-racist advocates in D.C. She and a white man were co-chairs of the conference, and she was actually recognized at the time for being the co-chair, which is huge. You go, 1929, because I feel like even nowadays it's so common for women's work, specifically the work of women in color, on conferences like that to be totally erased. And then finally, Georgia Douglas Johnson was a massive anti-lynching advocate. A vast majority of the plays that she would write in her lifetime dealt explicitly with lynching and how brutal it was. And Georgia had first-hand experience. After all, she grew up in Georgia. In the 1880s and 1890s in Georgia, there was an average of one lynching a month in the state, and lynchings in the Deep South were big deals. They were community events where everyone came out to watch them. There is no doubt, to me at least, that Georgia Douglas Johnson was very aware not only of how a lynching could happen, but what one looked like. Unlike a lot of her contemporary authors, she did not give her plays about lynching, happy endings, because she felt like doing so would be unrealistic. And the fact that a woman was being so honest, not only about racial brutality, but about lynching specifically, was shocking for 1920s and 1930s audiences. And the fact that her plays didn't have happy endings meant that a lot of major groups, like the NAACP or... The WPA Federal Theater Project didn't want to produce the plays because those groups wanted stories with at least some sort of optimism. Even though she struggled to get her lynching plays published, she still managed to stay involved in anti-lynching advocacy in other ways. For example, she was a member of the writing, the Writers League Against Lynching. So for the decade after her husband's death, things are looking pretty good for Georgia Douglas Johnson. She's trying out all sorts of new forms of writing. She's opened this fabulous salon. She's very politically involved. She's made it through the first two years of the Great Depression unscathed. It's great. But then, in 1934, she lost her job at the Department of Labor. Part of the reason for her firing was because of the Great Depression. Everyone was losing their jobs, and if the choice was between getting rid of a woman or an African American person, or gasp, an African American woman, or getting rid of a white man, well, they certainly were not going to pick the white man. The other reason why she lost her job at the Department of Labor was because the initial appointment had been purely political and had been a way for Republicans to reward other Republicans, and the president in power in 1934, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, wasn't exactly a Republican. The loss of her job started a bit of a downward spiral for Georgia Douglas Johnson. Throughout the late 1930s and 1940s, unsurprisingly, she had quite a lot of economic trouble she started to bounce between various jobs, including working as a librarian, a substitute teacher in the still-segregated Washington, D.C. school system, and a file clerk for various departments of the federal government, mostly in the Department of Labor. On top of all of this, Georgia was starting to have way more trouble getting published by now. In the mid-1930s, she was able to get some funding through the WPA Federal Theater Project, but it wasn't that much, and she certainly wasn't getting the level of funding that she had gotten during her heyday. She was able to get a little bit of work reading aloud poetry on various radio programs during World War II, but people just didn't want to publish her more political work, and a lot of Georgia Douglas' Johnson's work was extremely political, On top of this, Georgia was starting to have to compete against a new generation of African-American female authors, such as Lorraine Hansberry. And they really shouldn't have been pitted against each other. Both women are amazing and important authors in their own right. It's like comparing apples and, I don't know, mozzarella cheese the two aren't alike, but the two were pitted against each other, and Laurie and Hansberry usually went out because, in comparison, Georgia's work felt a little bit, well, cliched and old-fashioned. By the 1940s, Georgia started gathering all of her memories of her time at the S Street Salon into an actual book, and by 1944, she had it all sketched out, but it never got published, which I think is a huge shame. I read some of her, like, diary entries about the Salon, and it's literally just a list of who's who in the Harlem Renaissance, and what they said, and what they did, and what the responses to those things were like. It's fascinating, and someone should publish it. If someone needs a dissertation idea, there you go. After about 1944 or so, it's really hard to get any specific information about Georgia Douglas Johnson in her life. She was writing, but nothing was getting published. She continued to move between work as a substitute teacher and work in the federal bureaucracy, and she sort of just drops out of the picture. Until 1965, when she got an honorary PhD in literature from her alma mater, Atlanta University, for her reputation as, quote, a sensitive singer of sad songs, faithful interpreter of the feminine heart of a Negro with its joys, sorrows, limitations, and frustrations of racial oppression in a male-dominated world, dreamer of broken dreams, end quote. Getting this honorary PhD was huge for Georgia Douglas Johnson. She'd been trying to get one for quite a bit of her career. By having an advanced degree attached to her name, it would have allowed her access to all sorts of different literary opportunities that she'd been blocked from. But unfortunately for Georgia, it was too little, too late. The next year, she died on May 14th, 1966, at the Freedmen's Hospital in Washington, D.C. at the age of 88. So, let's talk a little bit about the writing of Georgia Douglas Johnson. Georgia Douglas Johnson is probably best known for her work in poetry. In fact, she got the nickname the Lady Poet of the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s due to her work in that medium. In her lifetime, she published for collections of poetry, The Heart of a Woman, Bronze, An Autumn Love Cycle, and Share My World. The first three were published between 1918 and 1928, and the last one, Share My World, was published shortly before her death. Between 1918 and 1928, she was one of the most prolific poets of the Harlem Renaissance, regardless of gender, based solely on how much she wrote and how good the reviews of her poetry were. However, as always, due to her gender, she has been traditionally sidelined in the larger discussion of the Harlem Renaissance. For example, when you say, oh, poet of the Harlem Renaissance, most people probably think Langston Hughes or Claude McKay, maybe County Cullen if we're doing some really good deep cuts, Jean Toomer maybe. Probably not that many people say Georgia Douglas Johnson as their first thought, even though she was writing just as much as them and her reviews were just as good. Georgia said that her decision to write poetry was based on her past experience in music, specifically her time at Oberlin. Later on in life, she wrote that, quote, the words took fire and the music smoldered, so I turned my face towards poetry. As a result, a lot of her poems were extremely lyrical, and it should not come as a surprise that she set quite a few of them to music later on in life. Other things that make her poems stand out are their strong use of metaphor and the fact that she used rhyme and meter usually either sonnets or quatrains, in her poetry, unlike quite a few of her contemporaries who tended to write in a more modernist style, using blank and free verse. Georgia Douglas Johnson's first poetry collection, The Heart of a Woman, was published in 1918. The Heart of a Woman is a series of poems about the female experience, and that in contemporary 1910 society, women just did not have as many options as men it is probably the most autobiographical of her collections and really pulled from her and really pulled from the fact that her husband link did not want her to write and instead wanted her to be a more traditional housewife at the time when it was published critics both male and female loved the way that georgia captured the feminine experience Georgia's second collection, Bronze, came out in 1922, and it was more focused on her experience being African American as opposed to being a woman. It's most likely that Bronze came out of the criticism that The Heart of a Woman didn't focus enough on the African American experience, which we've seen as a common critique of so many of the women I've covered in this series. Either they're not female enough or they're not African-American enough. It's almost like they needed intersectional feminism and that concept didn't yet exist, but now it exists, so everything's all nice and solved, right? No, not really, sadly. In bronze, Georgia divided the collection into nine different sections that she used to cover the range of the African-American experience from supplication to exaltation, and she closed the collection with a group of odes to prominent African-Americans and a few white people who hoped end slavery. Much like The Heart of a Woman, Bronze got pretty fantastic reviews across the board from reviewers regardless of race or gender, except for, of course, W.E. Beatty Boys, who called the entire project right, because of course he did. And then we have Georgia's third book, An Autumn Love Cycle, which she published in 1928 and which is considered by a lot of modern scholars to be her best work. In An Autumn Love Cycle, Georgia uses her poems to tell the story of an older African-American woman's love affairs, and unlike her earlier poems, she moved away from her use of traditional forms like the sonnet into more experimental, free, and blank verse. Outside of her poetry, Georgia Johnson Georgia Douglas Johnson is probably best known for the various one-act plays she wrote. Most of these plays fell into the category known as protest drama, specifically anti-lynching plays. And it makes sense, as we've already discussed, why she was so focused on the topic of lynching and On top of her most likely past experiences with lynching, she was writing most of these plays in the late 1920s when the United States was dealing with a second rise of the KKK because we don't deserve nice things in America. While Georgia wrote over 31 acts, most of the manuscripts were lost and only about 12 of them still survive today. In her plays, whether they were anti lynching plays or on other topics, she was known for mixing dialect with more standard English, even though the idea of standard English is inherently problematic and racist. She also was known for capturing authenticity very well in her plays, specifically the authenticity of African American life in the 1920s. Georgia Douglas Johnson, as a result, was considered to be one of the few Negro playwrights of the Harlem Renaissance because she was, one, an African-American writing about two, African-American subjects for for three, an explicitly African-American audience. Eulalie Spence probably wouldn't have been considered a Negro playwright under these criteria because, As we remember from last episode, she was West Indian, not African American, and as we all know, those things really matter when we're categorizing female artists. So, that is the life and times and work of Georgia Douglas Johnson. As always, for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's do a quick recap. Georgia Douglas Johnson was most likely born in 1877 in Atlanta, Georgia. Some biographies say she was born in 1886, but her birth certificate says 1877, so let's go with 1877. We don't know a whole lot about her family. Yes, we do have her parents' names, and according to some letters she wrote, she had at least one sister, but beyond that, there's not that much information about her early family life her parents separated when she was a child, and Georgia, her mother, and whatever siblings she had moved to Atlanta, where she grew up. In 1893, Georgia graduated from the normal school of Atlanta University and became an English and music teacher in the Atlanta and Marietta area. In 1902, she attended the Oberlin Conservatory, where she studied music and planned to be a composer. That plan failed, and she moved back to Georgia, where she taught as where she worked as an assistant principal and met and married Henry Lincoln, A.K.A. Link Johnson. Link was a well-known African American attorney and was quickly rising in the ranks of the local Republican Party. The two had two sons together, Henry Jr. and Peter, and then in 1909, the entire Johnson family moved to Washington, D.C because Link got appointed to be the recorder of the deeds, and then later on to be the Republican National Committee man from Georgia. In comparison to the Deep South, Washington, D.C. was a great place for Georgia to live in, there was less overt and violent racism, and there was a really thriving Black cultural scene. Once she was in D.C., Georgia started writing, and sadly, her husband wasn't actually all that keen on Georgia writing. He wanted a traditional housewife. Fucking gag me. However, Georgia didn't listen to her husband, and by 1916, her poetry started being published in the Crisis and getting some pretty fantastic reviews. She published her book of poetry in 1918 and 1928 too. Most of Georgia's poetry dealt either with being a woman, being an African American, or gasp both at once, and her poetry was known for its lyrical language, heavy use of metaphor, and reliance on more traditional forms such as sonnets and quatrains. However, then in 1925, Georgia's husband died unexpectedly of a stroke, leaving Georgia single with two college-age sons who need someone to pay their tuition. Georgia managed to do all of that, thanks partially from royalties of her writing, and also because then-Republican President Calvin Coolidge gave her a job in the Department of Labor as a Commissioner of Conciliation in recognition of the work that her husband had done for the larger Republican Party. While this job did make Georgia a good amount of money, she hated working a traditional 95 because it made it harder for her to focus on her art. After her husband's death, Georgia got more involved in political activity. She became close to the Brotherhood of the Sleeping Car Porters, one of the first African-American labor unions in the United States. She helped organize anti-racist conferences in D.C. and was a firm advocate against lynching. By the 1920s, she had moved from just writing poems into writing plays. She ended up writing around 30 plays, many of which dealt with topics around lynching, although the manuscript of only 12 of those plays still survive. In addition, Georgia turned her home that she had previously shared with her husband into a literary and cultural salon known as the S Street Salon. The S Street Salon was mostly focused on helping female African American artists and writers hone their craft, although occasionally Georgia would invite male African American authors like Langston Hughes as well as non-African American artists. In addition to this, Georgia also would open her home to people going through tough times to just stay in, giving it its nickname, the Halfway House. Until about 1934, things were looking great for Georgia. She had a good amount of money saved. She had her beautiful home. She was a center of the African-American cultural scene. Even though she rarely went up to New York City, she was considered to be the lady poet of the Harlem Renaissance but then in 1934, she lost her job at the Department of Labor, partially because of the Great Depression and partially because she had been appointed by a Republican, and FDR wasn't about that life. After losing her job, Georgia's Life went on a bit of a downward spiral. She began suffering from economic issues and had to bounce between various low-paying jobs, including working as a librarian and a substitute teacher, and she really struggled to get published. Her work was seen simultaneously as too political and depressing and also too cliched and old-fashioned. Throughout the 1940s, Georgia would attempt to get a book of her Memories of the S Street Salon, published, but that never quite happened. In 1965, she got an honorary PhD from her alma mater, Atlanta University, before dying the next year, May, on May 14th, 1966, in Washington, D.C., at the age of 88. So, that's Georgia Douglas Johnson. Quite a woman, some really high highs, and some really low lows but I think she's important. Not only did she write beautiful poetry, but she actively worked to help other writers and to connect other writers, and that's so important when it comes to art and expanding artistic circles. So if we remember her for anything, it really should be that. As always, to close out this episode, I'm going to read a poem of hers. I chose her poem the Heart of a Woman, which is the titular poem of her first poetry collection. I just really love this poem. I think it's beautiful. The heart of a woman goes forth with the dawn as a lone bird, soft winging, so restlessly on. Afar o'er life's turrets and veils as it roam, in the wake of his echoes, the heart calls home. The heart of a woman falls back with the night and enters some alien cage in its plight, and tries to forget it has dreamed of the stars while it breaks, breaks, breaks on the sheltering bars. Most of the research for this episode came from the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame article on Georgia Douglas Johnson, the ThoughtCo article on her by Joan Johnson Lewis, the plays of Georgia Douglas Johnson edited by Judith Louise Stevens, the article on her in Maureen Honey's Shadow Dreams, and from Color, Sex, and Poetry by Gloria Hull. As always, for a full list of sources and relevant images, you can visit the website sadgirlstudyguides.com. If you have questions, comments, corrections, concerns, ideas for future episodes, ideas for future series, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. Next time, I'm going to still be covering the Harlem Renaissance, but we're going to be moving from just the writing to the more visual art side of things with Augusta Savage. Until then, if you want to financially support the podcast, you can become a patron at patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n forward slash Sadgirl. Study guides. There are multiple tiers of membership, and you get access to fun things like tangent casts where I talk about a person, place, or thing that didn't quite fit in to a full length episode, as well as shout outs and the opportunity to select a topic for an episode. As always, if you want to chat on social media, there's the Twitter Sad Girl Study Pod. And the Instagram sadgirl study. As always, the best way to help this podcast grow is to tell a friend or subscribe, or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And please, let me know how I'm doing. Read or review, or else I'll be sad. Thanks!